You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You don't learn to ski by just reading a book, right? You're going to have to get on the bunny hill. And in this market, it might be time to get on the bunny hill. To the self-made and the self-sufficient, our partner Edelman Financial Engines can tailor investment solutions for the wealth you're building. As a Her Money listener, you'll get a complimentary financial plan when you call 833-304-PLAN or visit planefe.com slash hermoney. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Over the last few months, the last few weeks, there have been more ups and downs in the stock market than we care to count. All of the major U.S. indices have succumbed to bear markets. As of mid-June, the S&P 500 is down nearly 20% from an all-time high in early January. And at the same time, crypto has seen unprecedented losses, with Bitcoin halving its value over the last few months and other currencies seeing losses of 20% or more. Couple this with all the new asset classes like NFTs that too few investors truly understand and predictions from countless experts that market volatility isn't going anywhere anytime soon. And it's really easy to understand why investors are nervous. I'm nervous. And all of this got me wondering, how do you take risk in an era that seems so very risky? How do you think about risk in an era that seems so very risky? And how do you find safety while also stretching yourself and opening yourself up to possibility? We know that big risks are often necessary for big rewards, and many, if not most of us, have imagined what it might be like to start our own thing. Many of us have wondered if we have what it takes to lead an organization, develop a product, generally just test our limits. We spend a lot of time on this show talking about what it means to find success in our financial lives, in our careers, with our families, with our friendships. And the truth is, there is an incredibly wide spectrum for exactly how women can take the sort of risks and make the sort of big decisions that can benefit our lives. And that spectrum is growing wider every day as more career paths open up and more women find success in traditionally male-dominated fields. I'm so excited that today we're going to be learning about those calculated risks and how to make those big money decisions from one of the absolute best. Jenny Just is one of the few self-made female billionaires in the United States. And From her days cutting her teeth on the trading floor in Chicago to now running a fintech empire, she has started or turned around more than 15 companies. Jenny co-founded her company, which is called Peak Six, in 1997 with one and a half million dollars in seed capital as a proprietary options trading firm. Since then, she's grown it into a multi-billion dollar financial services and technology giant. And in addition to her ability to transform, she looks for underfunded 
underappreciated sectors in high growth businesses and ways to turn those underfunded, underappreciated sectors into high growth businesses. She's also great at finding opportunities for women to succeed at every table from the classroom to the conference room to the boardroom to the poker table. And we will talk about that because Jenny launched Poker Power in 2020. It's a women-led company that teaches poker to all people who identify as female and by extension teaches women strategic thinking capital allocation and decision-making skills. She's also created programs to help women advance their careers in trading, fintech, and technology. Jenny, welcome. We are so honored that you take some time to speak with us today, and we're excited to learn more from you and about you. Thank you so much, Jean. It is a pleasure and certainly an honor to be around you. I, as I said earlier, I've been watching you for many years on TV. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. Tell me a little bit about you. Tell me about what got you to that launch pad for Peak Six. So I think it's fairly unique because I grew up with four brothers. I was the only girl. And after graduating from the University of Michigan, I wanted to be in the big city. In the big city, I grew up in Wisconsin, was Chicago. And so I was going to go there no matter what it took. And theoretically, you know, that was my risk, right? Mm -hmm. I'll do anything as long as I can be in that city. And I ended up at an options trading firm, O'Connor and Associates, which to this day I'm eternally grateful for because they taught me a skill that has been transferable to everything I've done in my life. But that first year, I went down to the Chicago Board Options Exchange floor with all those men, and I had to succeed. There wasn't an option. And I think if it weren't for O'Connor being there supporting me and, frankly, taking a risk on a female in that business at that time, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. I hear so much of myself in your story. I was born in Michigan, raised in Wisconsin, went to the big city after college, and I only have two brothers, but I'm still the only girl. So Super I, interesting. I get it. <laughs> I get it. You know, options, right? We don't, we don't talk about options a lot on this show. And in part, we don't talk about them because when I was at Smart Money Magazine and I was at Smart Money at the very, very beginning, I was employee number five, we weren't even allowed to write about them. Like they were considered oh so risky that we were not allowed to touch them. I know the world has changed, but before we get into peak six and strategic thinking, can we just talk about options for a second? Do you think options need to be in every investor's playbook at this point? So I think that's a great question, mostly because I do. And I think it still has that negative overhang from so many years of being so risky. There are risky things you can do with options, but options can be an extraordinarily useful tool as well. What we talk about is options are like puzzle pieces. And they help create a structure, sort of a payout structure over a certain period of time that can be personalized to you. And usually someone buys a stock and it either goes up and they're happy and goes down and they're not happy, right? Options allow you to have that insurance. 
options allow you to take in some premium. Options are unique securities and an asset that I think, given the way the fintech world has developed over the last 10 years, that we can now start to feel more secure because the education's at our fingertips, the ability to try it is much lower cost, and the ability to watch what you've done as things move around so you learn and so you experience owning that asset or selling that asset is really there. I think it was the way it was for so long for various reasons. It's like, why was Wall Street just, it's either Wall Street, you're either on Wall Street or you're off. Mm -hmm. You're not somewhere in between. And the technology has really made a bridge. So it really should make that bridge for all asset classes. You know, it's a little ironic, frankly, crypto gets as much airtime as it does. And options here can be a really useful tool for people. Yeah. But they're dissuaded. And when you talk about them in terms of insurance, I mean, that's essentially Mm -hmm. what you're talking about, insurance, in case the direction of your bet doesn't go in the way that you made it. I'm going to put a pin in the options discussion. We're going to come back and let me just promise my listeners that we will do a whole show on options and unpacking them in the very, (laughs) very near future. But today I want to talk about three different things. I want to talk about risk and confidence to take risk. I want to get into decision-making and deal-making. And I want to talk about what you're seeing in the markets today and your best advice for investors, particularly those investors who might be more risk-averse. So let's start at the top and let's start with risk and the confidence to take it. What does risk mean to you? So I think when people usually talk about risk, it's about something large, right? It's going to have a monetary impact and the weighting of it is more negative than positive. But the truth is we take risks every day, right? People like to say you take a risk when you cross the street. But when you spend money on something you typically spend money on and it didn't turn out, to be exactly what you wanted it to be, that was a risk. You tried something new, Mm -hmm. right? You might have tried a new type of food at dinner. You didn't really like it. You can't get that money back, right? So risk is sort of around us all day, every day, in all our decisions. When we're choosing one thing over another thing, I'm losing an opportunity, potentially. But of course, in all those cases, I also could be gaining. And for me, I like to think of the risk if I know, I'm consciously know I'm taking a risk as opportunistic, because worst case, I might lose something. It might be financial, but I still learn something. And best case, I learn something and it's a positive outcome from whatever I, I wanted it to be. But I think the biggest thing with risk is that, especially for women, we don't take risk often enough. So it's not about taking bigger risks. It's about taking more risks. And the sooner we do, the sooner we learn, the sooner that we have the opportunity for that flywheel of understanding to be part of our next risk-taking. So when I think about your listeners, they would know compound interest, Mm -hmm. right? When I invest, I 
put in my principal, I get some interest on my principal, I reinvest it on that whole thing. Now I can get interest on my interest, right? So now it's an exponential benefit over time. I like to talk about something called compound experience, where if I can compound those experiences sooner, each of those experiences technically being a risk of some sort, small or big, but if I can do those sooner, just like in investing, if I can start sooner, the benefits of those experiences will be in my favor for a very long period of time. When we look at surveys on women and investing, we often see this confidence gap. And I'm wondering if you think, I mean, you said women don't take risks often enough, but do you think that's equally true inside and outside of the investing world? Your example of foods that you don't like, when I go out to dinner, I always order a glass of Chardonnay. My husband makes fun of me because, you know, there can be 20 great looking drinks on the menu. I am going to have a glass of very specific oaky California Chardonnay, whichever is the oakiest, that's the one. And I know that there are haters out there, but whichever is that wine, that is what I'm going to have. And I'm not budging off of it. Right. But I will invest in a startup business? I mean, do you think it's your one or the other? I think it's probably not one or the other, but I think there are multiple quadrants of a single human, right? And in some places you will take more or less risk. The most obvious one is really around financial risk, whatever, however you want to define that, whether it's the dinner or it's a stock in either case, you could lose your money or in the dinner for sure because your money's gone, right? I think, though, your Chardonnay could be a good example, right? If I knew you in a vacuum and you told me the story, I would say, mm, she might not take enough risks. But knowing your history, right, you've been taking risks for a very long period of time. And I think, too, for and generally speaking, we do risk management here all day, every day, right? There's that component where you reset. And your wine is your reset. And you want to go back to that because you learned that, by the way, through some trials. I'm sure I did. I learned it from one too many glasses of Pinot Grigio, probably. (laughs) What is it about poker that teaches women to take risks and to take them in the right way? Tell us a little bit about poker power. Sure. So, I mean, poker is new to me as well. I was the same as 90 3% of the women out there who will, someone says poker and I'll turn away, right? No interest. But I started poker because of my daughter, who was 14 at the time. She's now 16. And by the way, I'm surrounded by poker players in our trading business. (laughs) And I still didn't make anything of it. It's just something the guys do, right? And my husband came home from her tennis match and said, she may as well be hitting against a wall or hitting with her teacher. She doesn't realize she's hitting against someone who's strategizing based on what's going on in the game. And the last point, she doesn't realize that she should be rethinking that strategy. She needs to play poker and walks away. And I didn't think anything of it because I'm not a poker player. By the way, he's not a poker player either. Funny. And two weeks later, I was like, should I teach my daughter to play poker? And it sounded so odd. And so what bothered me is that sounded so odd. Because if I had said it about my son, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't have sounded peculiar. And so I decided to do a little experiment. 
And I did it with her friends. And I asked the friends' moms. And then they said, well, can we join too? And from lesson one to lesson four, it was this literally the skies opened. First lesson, girls are whispering. Everybody's nervous, sharing, making decisions. Someone loses their chips. You can have all my chips. <laughs> to the fourth lesson, sitting up tall, peeking at their cards, not talking to anybody, maybe the teacher, right? To nobody's going to take my goddamn chips to save my life. Like we were astonished. So I was like, there's something here. For good fortune, came upon a woman who was a poker player and a school teacher. And we asked her to create a curriculum for us. And this is literally going into COVID. And we said, how is this poker table like a boardroom table, like a meeting table, like any table that you're uncomfortable sitting at? And then suddenly, as we got more advanced, because I'm learning the game as we go along too, I see, wait a sec, I've been playing poker my whole life. I didn't realize it. Mm -hmm. I see my day happens at the poker table. There is a narrative that happens at the poker table. You, do you play, by the way? I don't play, but I'm going to play now. You're, oh, my gosh. We would love to teach you. The position goes around. The dealer starts in one spot and goes around the table. And everybody has a role, every single hand. And you can't get away without making a decision. So it's forcing you to have an opinion, right? You could fold your cards, but if you fold your cards, you're for sure going to, if you fold them all the time, for sure you're going to lose. And then you have to strategize based on what everybody else is doing. And then you have to strategize based on how many chips other people have. And then based on the cards and the unknown information, right? The information you're never going to know. And then you have to deduct what the possibility of certain outcomes are going to be and where you should be relative to it. And in one single hand, all of those dynamics can change again with just one more card that comes out in the middle. Now, how does my decision look? And by the way, how does it look to everybody else at the table? And based on where we are in the order, I'm watching what's mm -hmm. happening. I'm watching the power dynamic. And now I have to make a decision again. And hand after hand after hand, you are exercising muscles as a female, as far as I'm concerned, that nowhere else I've ever seen. I've never seen the ability to exercise that decision-making prowess, that strategizing, that capital allocation, that taking risk over and over and over again. And so we're not teaching, we're, of course, you know, there are, we don't know the real numbers, well over hundred million people in the world that play poker. Some less than seven, 8% are women. Men are playing because it's freaking fun. It is a fun, fun game. Worst case, it's fun. But if you take this for real, right? And we're playing in a safe environment, with women's table, there's no money, and you really study this game, you, along with all of the other women we have now taught, we're in 40 countries, we're teaching at large corporations, large, some of the biggest law firms in the country, we're at the Kellogg School of Management, it's part of their program now. It has taken us to a place we never would have imagined, which is, how do we go from rooting for women to tangibly teaching skills that they can use every single day in their lives. What has happened to your daughter's tennis game? Oh my gosh. So the funny thing is, she doesn't like tennis so much, but her lacrosse game is badass. And I will say it is, one, because she's a tough cookie, and she's a badass poker player too. But it's her desire to think about strategy 
is what's, you know, because she's only girl. She has three brothers. But her desire to think in that way, right? What am I doing on the field? Why am I doing it on the field? What's a better way to accomplish that same objective? When that group of people is playing, when they're on the field, when somebody else is on the field, right, can directly correlate to that. And more importantly, right, as we started to do this, the women at Peak Six, we asked for their daughters and their nieces and stuff. And they said, well, why wouldn't it be good for us? And we're like, great. This was during COVID, figured it out. Mm -hmm. And then Morningstar, you, you know Morningstar? Sure, of course. Large international firm came and said, well, can we learn too? And that sort of opened this up to well over 10,000 women that we've taught at this point. And we want to teach a million women to play. We need to get to a million to get the ball rolling downhill. That's amazing. People talk about having a poker face. How important is the poker face in playing poker and for women in life? So there are, you know, there's some funny stories in poker where, for example, a woman played, never looking at her cards, won a tournament, like a big time tournament, never looked at her cards. So this is why it is such a high correlation to a meeting room, that negotiation you just got out of, because you're playing people. It's not blackjack. Blackjack is gambling. Poker is a proven game of skill. I actually am playing the people. I'm playing cards, but I'm playing people. So it's incredibly important. It's also a reason why women should be, you know, fantastic at this game, frankly, because their intuition is probably certainly as good as and maybe better. But that ability to what I think I've personally learned is there's types of players. And when there's types of poker players, and now I suddenly say, what type of person am I sitting in a room with in a meeting, right? And I try and bring that lens, but then I say, what if I'm wrong, right? Because that's what poker keeps you on your toes. Because you don't know what the cards they have are. Yeah. Right, because they might be great at bluffing. Now I have to think of various outcomes. Now I can deduct where I should go. What is my risk tolerance? What is the equity to value here? What is the equation? What can I lose? So I put a spectrum of outcomes together, purely based on what I think is happening with that person on the other side of the table, which is why the more poker hands you play, the more practice you get at trying to think about playing that person. And by the way, one thing I, I always thought was just a load of hooey was being able to play an online game and know the personality of that player. And because obviously with COVID, we had to be in an app. It's incredible what you learn. You know, T. Marie, she'll laugh if she listens to this. You know, some of these players that I play online, because we have Poker Powers community games three times a day. So these women can get on and practice, practice, practice. It's like exercising. That's what I talk about. It's not about a big tournament. Great if somebody wants to do that. It's about practicing more hands. And you start to learn about the human through their actions and without even seeing them. That's it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And the women of her money are in. We are going to learn poker. That's great. I think this would be really, really good for all of us. I want to move on to the other topics that sure. I teed up. But before I do that, 
Let me just mention that for all the self-made, self-sufficient listeners in our audience, our partner Edelman Financial Engines can tailor investment solutions for the wealth that you're building, growing, and protecting because their management approach is based on Nobel Prize winning research and their planners don't sell products to earn commissions, period. So no matter where you're going next, you're going to want to see how they can help you get there. I'm talking with Jenny Just. She is co-founder of Peak Six. I know you talk a lot about both decision-making and deal-making. How are they similar and how are they different? So deal-making, I think of sort of top-down and decision-making, bottom-up. They come together, though, at a certain point. And the interesting thing, I think for us, what we've learned over making a lot of deals over time, and then obviously a lot of corresponding decisions leading up to making or not making a deal, is that it's not about the numbers. It's about what we were just talking about a minute ago. It's about the people. And how do I understand the true intentions of why this deal is should or should not happen? And how do I understand when I make a decision, the impact on the people. So collectively, we're heading towards the same, I guess, vertex point when we think about it. In both cases, when we talk to our internal Peak Six women, if I can encourage them at all to practice the decision-making at poker, just to win a hand, right? Versus how to win a table, right? A single table tournament. One would be decision-making, one would be deal-making. If I could get them in the habit of thinking, I have to do these things bottom up, right? But top down, I have to have a vantage point. I have to have a strategy. So let's take it out of the poker table and put it into a job negotiation. Great. You're out, as so many women are today. You are negotiating for a new job. They want you. That's clear. How do you get what you want in that negotiation when it gets tough, whether it's more salary, whether it's more flexibility, whether it's more options? How do you come away feeling satisfied? So I think the biggest thing is you know what you want, but you're negotiating with somebody else. And there are pros, academics, a lot of sound, really sound research around this, how to do this the right way. And I know from your, some of your podcasts that you've talked to some experts around this as well. When I think about it from how it's worked for me personally, I'm pretty good at knowing what I want. I may be pretty good at knowing what the other person wants and what they need. But then once I think about that, I have to think about what are the possibilities that could match us to getting where you know, we could come to a happy medium and 80-20 my way, 20-80 their way. But while I'm in the middle of trying to figure out what those possible outcomes are, I have to think about what they think I'm thinking. So it's multiple levels. As long as you take it, and I will for one moment bring it back to poker. If I just think about my cards at poker, it's pretty simplistic. Mm -hmm. I have to think about what my opponent's cards are. It takes me to the next level, right? I have to think about my boss who I'm asking for a raise from. I have to think about his cards. The complex level 
is now when I have to think about what he's thinking about what I'm thinking. And when I get to do that, when I get to practice that, that's not in your, you know, so we have a 12 lesson program and that's not in the first four lessons. But when you start to do that, you start to put probabilities around outcomes and you start to realize you may not have the best cards. So what I wouldn't do is if I don't have strong cards and you figure out what do strong cards mean, it doesn't always mean just because somebody else is getting, my friend at this other company is getting paid this much, therefore I should get paid this much. That's not, may not be a good strong card because this company might not be making money and that company making a lot of money. You have to challenge yourself if you have really good cards or not. Do you have a good data set that you're bringing to the equation? A good argument about what you've done, mm-hmm. the value you've created. And if you can make that argument, and by the way, I personally always feel like I need to know when I go into the argument if I'm willing to go to the mat on this. I'd walk. And that's really hard for a lot of people. But I think if you know, you know. If you think you're a person who would never go to the mat, that's a little bit trickier, right? I would never walk. But at a minimum, if you said, what's the range? That's when you talk about the probability of outcomes. Would I actually walk? I'm not thinking of walking at all. My leverage going into that, I don't have very good cards. And it's probably if you know that you don't want to walk, intimating that you might is probably not the best move. I mean, I, you know, we talk about, we haven't talked about bluffing, but, you know, I think you'd probably really have to be careful about where you do that. Right. You want to know, you want to know where you stand. And by the way, I don't have any problem with a really straightforward dialogue with a boss that says, I'm not going anywhere. I really like it here. But I also don't feel like I'm paid well. I think at a minimum, it should be X. And I'd love to hear why you don't think that's the case if you're at that point in the conversation. Because you put your cards up. That doesn't mean you're not not walking. But again, now here, it's like you put another card on the table. You showed him a card. Mm-hmm. You showing a card at that point is eye-opening to him or her. Right? We're assuming it's him. <laughs> yeah. Because in return, what I would say is she's showing me a card. I should probably show her a card. Right. Right. This is the trick that that we play in my world as reporters, right? Mm -hmm. I'll give a little piece of information in order to get the little piece of information that I want when I'm doing an interview, right? right? I'll share a little something from my life. You share something from yours and we go back and forth. As we wrap up this conversation, can we talk about the markets today? Sure. What do you see in these volatile markets? I think this has been coming we're not market timers at all, but it looked like it was coming and it came. You know, the crypto crazy today, right? Same. Looked like it was coming last week. The bright light is that if you focus on companies that make money, right? And I think this is always the case. Focus on great companies. And when there is a downturn in a market like this, and I'm obviously not a financial advisor, but that's when you can really find some great opportunities. And by the way, don't ever expect to pick the bottom, right? Because you won't, but getting involved is my biggest message. So when I think about, you know, money is a language, you use that 
language all day, every day, whether you feel it or not. Somehow when it comes to stocks and investments, oftentimes women will shy away from that conversation, but they shouldn't. They can make those decisions as well as anybody else. Now, they may not want to make the decisions, but I think part of that is the not getting educated, right? And there's so many great tools out there today to educate yourself. Obviously, a bunch of Apex's clients are Stash and Public and Webull, like all of these, you know, we have 220 of them, clients who are use our, our technology and they're all trying to educate you. And I think the biggest thing is to participate it's one of my biggest concerns when you mentioned the NFTs in the beginning and women are being left out, mm-hmm. right? They're a very small percentage of all of our crypto accounts. I don't know what our crypto account number is today, but about, we have 20 plus million accounts at Apex. 22, I think. And we're in the 30-ish percent range for women of those accounts. Of our crypto accounts, I don't even know if it's 10%. And... The participation, back to this idea of compound experience and taking risk, opening a wallet, buying fractional shares, you don't have to spend a lot of money to learn. So if you spend time reading, right, and getting yourself educated so you feel more comfortable, we have a company actually, Zogo, it's bite-sized learning. Mm -hmm. It's great. It's earn and learn. You earn the pineapples and you get paid back with like a Starbucks gift card or an Amazon gift card. There's so many fun ways to learn. You don't learn to ski by just reading a book, right? You're going to have to get on the bunny hill. And in this market, it might be time to get on the bunny hill. Yeah. By the way, you're going to fall. Who doesn't fall? If you fell once and you never went back to skiing, people always go back after they fall once, right? You're going to fall countless times. This is the earlier, the better. And like I said, more risks, not bigger risks. You should own a crypto. You should own an NFT. You should own some stocks. And by the way, it's not a large portion of your money, right? But over time, you're going to understand your money better. Yeah, I could not. I could not agree more. I think, you know, the lion's share of your money, it's in your 401k. It is money that you are just investing over time habitually for retirement or your IRA, if you don't have a 401k or your SEP account, wherever it is, right? But all of these little pieces, I'm working, and our listeners know this, but I'm working with a woman named Karen Feinerman, who you'll see on CNBC, and we're teaching Mm -hmm. investing, right? We've got a program called Investing Fix, and we're investing together with a group of women, just picking individual stocks, because for many people, it's something that they've never done before. And so you got to get your feet wet. You got to do it. Even if, for me, the analogy that I always fall back on is the Little League baseball game, right? It Mm -hmm. is like watching paint dry if you do not have a kid on the field. But once you have a kid on the field, it's the World Series. It's so exciting and you're invested. Money is fun. Yeah. Money is fun. Now, it doesn't feel so fun when it goes down. But by the way, if it doesn't go down, something's wrong, right? Like it's going to go down. The question is over the long term. And that's really what you're trying to do is get to a place where you can have your money working for you over time, over a long period of time. And, you know, and you're going to make some choices. By the way, you might make choices when catastrophes happen to get rid of some of those stocks, but others you might hold through that catastrophe. But you learn that only by doing it. And I even think it's true if you decide you're not going to do it, but you're going to work with a financial advisor, whatever else it is, how can you talk to them 
if you're not practicing yourself, mm -hmm. just because they might take some majority of your money, when they tell you what they're doing, you need to understand what they're doing because they might get it wrong or they might, as you change, you might want to change. And so you need to be educated enough. It's your money. You worked hard to get it. You need to be engaged in it. So you, we always talk about like if you, on the spectrum of being f fluent in money, right? If you're totally fluent, you're an analyst on Wall Street or some version of that, right? You need to at minimum be conversational in money. And you actually are more conversational than you think. But you know where they, you, it's really telling is at the poker table. All of a sudden, there's like a force field and women don't go any further. No, you actually can sit at that table. It's amazing what our women are doing at the table. And that practice, once they sit, I laugh because when we first started, it was right pre-COVID and I, ran, I was in the bathroom and a girl came out and she's like, I just have to thank you. I never thought I could sit at the table and I won a hand. I'll tell you when I first, because it was COVID, I'd never, except for at, at friends, you know, with my daughter, I went to my first real table. My heart was pounding out of my chest, out of my chest, what the world has created for women around this table. It is what women face every day in the office, at work, in the classroom, right? Can I raise my hand or can I not? You know what? I can fail and I can fail again. And guess what? I still have chips. I failed small. I'm still in the game. Or by the way, maybe I lost all my chips and I come back again because I learned something from those fails. If our listeners want to get more involved to participate in Poker Power, how do they do that? Well, we'd love to have you. So there are two ways. We teach, you can go to pokerpower.com and you can join. Every month we have a new group cohorts that start different times, different days of the week. The other big way that we've been having a lot of success with is your company. So might go through your ERG, might go through HR, might go through DEI group. And we come in and we will, usually it starts with a smaller cohort and then they realize very quickly, this is really beneficial. And then, you know, we take it even further in the organization. Some organizations start at the top with their women. Some start at the bottom. The interesting thing is, all the women are starting in the exactly same spot. None of them know how to play. So the networking opportunities that end up happening, that's what became most interesting, especially during COVID internationally for these women. That's why they started to spread it. Now I'm making connections. Jenny, just amazing conversation. I'm excited to play and to bring the women of her money along. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. It was really fun to talk to you. So nice to talk to you, too. Thank you for having me. We'll dive into our mailbag in just a second. But first, let me remind everyone that Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union that helps its members feel confident and assured with the peace of mind that comes from making smart financial decisions. Visit bcu.org to learn different ways to secure your financial future. And Her Money's Catherine Tuggle joins me now. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. I am so soothed after that conversation. I would like Jenny to teach me poker. I would like Jenny to teach me how to organize my house. I think I think I just need yeah. I need more Jenny in my life. I feel the same exact way. And I'm really excited about poker. I mean, I think I told you that Elliot and I have been learning canasta, but 
I think poker might be a lot more fun. And I also think it's certainly going to be more beneficial in terms of being strategic in our lives. Yeah. I also think there's this call for poker, right? Like on a cruise or at a backyard barbecue or, you know, people are playing poker and it's nice as a woman to be able to go and take your seat at the table, know what you're talking about and assert yourself. Yeah. Although I do know people who have been playing a lot of canasta as well. And the woman who taught us canasta, we took some lessons with a friend of ours, a couple. We took them online on Zoom with this woman who started a business called Canasta Junction, which she then sold. But she was leaving the next day to go on a Canasta cruise. She was actually going to Canyon Ranch to teach Canasta. So although I do think poker is incredibly useful, Canasta is a lot of fun, too. It doesn't roll off the tongue, though, Jean. Canasta? No, it doesn't. No one canasta. wants to say I'm canasta my, is, canasta I'm playing is canasta. my hobby. <laughs> you don't know enough Jewish women in Florida. That's all I have to say. Well, maybe some of our mailbag questions today are actually listeners with Canasta questions. So maybe not. <laughs> I think that would be highly unlikely. <sighs> our first question today comes to us from Amy. She writes, hi, Jean. Thank you for your podcast. I'm gaining confidence as I'm listening to your show. I've been married for 21 years. We're both 51 years old and I've let my husband manage our finances for the last 10. I've had several reasons lately to take an active role in our finances. I started by gaining access to all accounts and writing down all of our debt, including the debt owed, percent interest, and minimal payment. The past three years, we've owed federal tax money. My husband asked me to have additional money withdrawn on my federal taxes, and I read that it would be better to have that placed in my 403B. I haven't been able to find out if it's dollar to dollar or less. We made $237,000 last year and both claimed zero dependence. We have one child and we owed $6,000 on taxes this year. Should I continue to take out more on federal taxes or put that money towards my 403B? Thank you for your advice. Amy, I'd love to give you incredibly specific advice here. I don't know the answer. And I think that what you actually need to do is to just spend an hour or maybe two with your tax advisor, with whoever helps you with your taxes. And if you or your husband do them yourselves, it's time to find an enrolled agent or a tax advisor doesn't have to be a CPA, but it could be a CPA, an accountant who can go through your last year's tax returns, figure out where the problems are, and then tell you specifically the right thing to do in order to make sure that you don't have a tax bill at the end of the year. Sometimes we're going to owe more money than we want to owe, particularly since the tax laws changed in 2017 and a lot of deductions that we were used to taking became ineligible. Some of us have had higher tax bills than we had in the past, particularly in states where you pay a lot in state and local taxes. But that 
isn't necessarily going to be the case in your situation. You just need to get a little specific advice from a tax professional who can look forward and look backward and tell you specifically what to do. Yeah, Jean, and I've had to adjust my withholding in multiple jobs over the years to prevent owing money. And the first time I did it, it took me an extra six months to do it because I was like, oh, this is going to be a hassle. This is going to be a thing. And it was so easy. It's so easy to go adjust those forms with HR there standing by ready to help you do that. Yeah, so easy. And of course, we want to do this in the most tax efficient way. And if making an additional contribution to a retirement plan is going to solve the problem, just do that, right? Because then you get to keep the money, basically. But I don't want to say just go ahead and do that if it isn't going to solve the problem, which is why you need to take a closer look at all the numbers. Right. Thank you. Sure. Our next question today comes to us from Marisa. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. I love listening to the show every week, and I've learned so much from it. In the next couple of years, once I reach a couple more financial goals, I want to start setting aside money for each of my nieces and nephews, who are currently all younger than seven, for when they become adults. I've heard in some previous mailbag questions that some of the choices for doing so include a 529, UGMA, and UTMA accounts. Although I understand the tax benefits and also the flexibility of use of a 529, I hesitate because I don't want the money I save for them to exclusively have to go towards education or job training of some kind. Ideally, I envision them being able to use the money for education or a wedding, a gap year, or whatever is right for them in their lives at the time. With that being said, I also hesitate on the UGMA UTMA route, as I know how careless I was at 18, and having the money just handed over to them feels risky. Is it my best bet to open a separate investment account for each one and lose out on any benefits? Or is there another option I'm not thinking of? Thank you again. I think what you need to do, because essentially what you're talking about is giving a gift that has some strings attached, not necessarily the sort of strings where you say, oh, no, you can't use that money for that purpose because clearly you are casting a very wide net, right? You are saying, I want this money to go to something that is meaningful to this child, whoever this person turns into when they grow up. But at the same time, you're trying to essentially protect them from the impulses of their 18 or 21-year-old selves. And the way to do that is with a simple trust, where you put the money into the account. Essentially, you make a gift to the younger person. The money in the trust can be invested, but you make yourself the trustee of that trust. You are not the owner of that money anymore. You have given it away, but you have some say over when and how the money can be accessed. And the person who would set up these trust accounts for you would be an estate planning attorney. It's not hugely difficult or expensive process. It's not completely cheap or easy either, but I would say you should probably plan on spending a thousand dollars or so to get this done 
talk to whoever set up your estate plan about the best option for this. I agree with you about UGMA accounts. I think that because we are putting the money in the hands of people who may later regret the decisions that they make when they're young, as you did, having some strings attached is a really good thing to do. And it's the sort of thing that many parents do for their own children when they're doing their estate planning. I certainly did it for mine. And I think for your nieces and your nephews, this would be a nice way to go. And you may be able to do it not with separate trusts for each of them, but with a single trust for all of them. I am not an estate planning attorney, so you're going to want to talk to an attorney about that. But this is incredibly nice of you. It's really generous. And I think that your nieces and your nephews will completely appreciate this once the time comes around when they realize what you've done for them. Yeah, it's such a beautiful gift. I think it's just so amazing when I hear of people doing this for their extended family. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for writing. Thanks for sharing. Catherine, thanks for the questions. Thank you, Jean. Let me just take a second to tell everyone that today's episode is also sponsored by PayPal Honey. I am a big online shopper, always have been. I'm sure some of you are too. It saves me time and thanks to Honey, it often saves me money. So if you haven't heard of Honey, it is a free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes. And essentially it applies the best ones that it finds to your carts at checkout. For example, Honey recently saved me 20 bucks on a new pair of running shoes and it was super easy to use. When you check out, what'll happen is that you'll see the Honey button drop down and all you have to do is click apply coupons, wait a few seconds as it searches and if Honey finds a working coupon, you'll watch the price drop in real time. So. If you're not using Honey today, you could be missing out on substantial savings. It is free, it's easy, it only takes a few secs to install. You can get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash hermoney. And in today's Thrive, how to hold a really cheap summer barbecue and still have a blast. Hot dogs, hamburgers, vegan kebabs, grilled corn, the list of delicious backyard fair goes on and on and we are so ready to celebrate with our friends and our loved ones but it doesn't seem fair that as soon as we're all ready to gather and party that inflation has hit a 40-year high making the ingredients for that perfect backyard barbecue some 15 percent higher than they were this time last year but at a time when everything seems to cost more it is still possible to plan something that'll feel fun without spending a fortune. At hermoney.com this week, we've got a rundown on how to plan the perfect barbecue on a 2022 budget. First, BYOC, bring your own cooler. Seriously, most of your guests will have their favorite go-to IPAs, wines, spike seltzers, libations of choice. So don't try to please everyone by spending a fortune. This year, don't even try to keep the drinks flowing. Instead, let your guests bring their own so they have what they want right at hand. Also, 
Keep in mind, potluck isn't just cheap, it's incredibly popular. The lists of diets that your friends and family may be on is vast. And one thing we've noticed lately is that everyone is usually happy, if not thrilled, to be responsible for bringing a dish to the party so that they know they'll have at least one safe gluten-free, vegan, paleo, keto thing to eat. If your guests are at a loss for what they might bring, feel free to assign them a dish, perhaps based on their level of punctuality. Seriously, you know who's going to arrive on time. You know who's even going to be early. So have those people bring the apps and those folks who tend to make a late appearance. Yeah, they're in charge of dessert. Lastly, Look to stretch your ingredients further. Consider serving items that can stretch your more expensive ingredients. For instance, instead of doing a caprese salad that uses quite a bit of expensive fresh mozzarella per person, make a caprese pasta salad where you can use a little less cheese and spread it out among a whole bunch of pasta. Similarly, Don't do a smoked salmon platter, do a smoked salmon dip. And if you want to have steak, but it would be way too expensive to do individual steaks, think about steak fajitas with lots of less expensive toppings like shredded lettuce, bell peppers, and onions. Also, keep in mind for many, many people, a good barbecue It is all about the sides, which help people fill up their plates at a lower cost. In other words, there is a good financial reason that potato salad, coleslaw, and that wonderful macaroni salad are always on our barbecue tables. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Jenny Just for walking us through her journey as a leader, an investor, and a risk taker. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.